Um, hey, if you have your Bibles, open to uh, Luke chapter 19 with me. I am super excited to be with you guys today. Um, and I want to say that actually kind of like authentically. I know everybody always says that. But actually, I'm really excited to be with you guys today. I have this funny feeling when I sit over there, and like this is about to start, where I'm like, man, like, I wish this wasn't necessarily the format. I wish we could just like all like sit in the cafe. But we all wouldn't fit in the cafe, and so it would be kind of weird. But I, do, I really do just wish like it's like, um, it's like we could have like one-on-one -on -one conversations about what we're learning about all these types of things. And, um, and that would just be like such a cool thing. So I'm just really happy um, to be with you guys and to be in this community because I look around and I see tons of faces. Sam Montalto, woo! Sam's been, uh, Sam's been basically house-ridden because of uh, his leg, and so he showed up to church today. What's up, buddy? Um, but really, it's just like, it's awesome to be with you guys. Um, as my dad said, we're, we're, uh, we're kicking off a new series today. December 1st, what a good day to do it. You almost wish it was snowing just so that we could get the dramatic effect. Um, the, uh, the series is called There's Just Something About Christmas. And as the mayhem of what is the December month and the holiday descends upon us, um, we thought as a church, how cool would it be to basically slow down and every Sunday we would look at some of the essential things that make up what Christmas is and I guess just through a process of discovery start to see where is Jesus in this holiday? Um, there's, um, there's obviously like a couple ways to look at Christmas. And one way is like it's all of our ideals thrown together, right? And there's no place that we see this more than in movies. So when you look at uh, a lot of our movies, um, you know, you guys share with each other what all your favorite Christmas movies are while we were talking. It's like everybody has these ideals and they come to life in the movies. It's like we all want to fall in love or we want to be like a family that's all together. And like those types of themes make it. Um, so we all have our favorites. Uh, we all have our favorite movies. There's um, how many people are, are like an elf family? That's your movie. Oh, gosh. <laughs> that's kind of new. And you guys like really, it's like you're front runners. Um, how many people like A Christmas Carol? All right, you can't vote twice, by the way. How many people, how many people, um, is it A Christmas Vacation? Yeah, all right, you'll raise your hand in church for that one, too. There's a couple scenes that are a little, yeah, right. Um, yeah, how many, here's a very interesting question. How many people in this room, their favorite Christmas movie is Family Man? <laughs> Whoa, Bonnie, too? Oh, wow. All right. So this is where we cue the Bob Gaglione story, because I'm never going to break this trend. Um, so Family Man has been our movie in our family for, like, uh, forever, like, since I can remember, in high school, I guess. And um, I don't know, probably almost nobody knows the story of Family Man. It's a Christmas movie, but it's, like, kind of a deep-cut Christmas movie. It's Nicolas Cage, and he's a, it's, like, basically a Scrooge story retold. He's a Wall Street executive who falls asleep on Christmas Eve, and when he wakes up, um, he wakes up and he discovers that he's in a suburban house, house in Jersey and he has this family. And so he's absolutely horrified because he left his Fifth Avenue penthouse suite and he's in like this place where he can like barely afford a cup of coffee. And he struggles with it for weeks or whatever and then as he slowly gets used to the family life and all that and what starts to happen is he starts to love the family and he doesn't want to go back to his life. He doesn't want to wake up from the dream. Um, and there's this like critical moment in the movie where this, where it like the, it crystallizes for him. Everybody goes to sleep, and it's just him um, downstairs in his like 
you know, like uh, family man type clothes or whatever. He's just like sitting there chilling and he starts putting in some home videos. And they're home videos of a life that he's actually never lived, so he's watching them for the first time. And so through that, he sees like the, his wedding video and stuff. And, and then one of, the, one of the videos that he pops in is this, um, is this scene where it's like, it looks like a 4th of July party, but it's actually his wife's birthday. And he knows, he's learned through the process of the last couple weeks that he sings to his wife on special occasions. And so what's, what happens in this home video is it's, it's her birthday and it's a surprise and his friend starts playing this song by the Delphonics, La La Means I Love You. You know this song? La 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 means I love you. That was so off key that I don't think anybody would be able to get that. But, but um, this is like a super popular song, I guess in the 70s or something like that. And his friend plays the piano and he sings this song like pretty horribly off key to his wife. And there's this super romantic keys and then the violin swell in. You can just see in his face that he's like, I don't want to go back to the life I had. It's all about family and now I realize that. So this became like such a thing in our family. If you stuck like all of us together in a room, we would be able to, I am 100% confident if our family got locked in a room and said you can only leave if you rewrite the script of Family Man from start to finish, we'd be able to do it from start to finish. And that scene is like the pivotal scene of the entire thing. And so here's the Bob Gaglione story. For my mom's 50th birthday, my dad pulled everybody together and we all hid in the basement, literally, her entire extended family, all of our family, probably 50 people hiding in our basement. She comes home and we bust out the door and we say, happy birthday and the big like 50th anniversary. And Leah, my sister, slides over the piano and starts playing the opening uh, riff of the Delphonic song. And my dad, who if you've ever sat next to him at church, literally cannot sing a single note on key to save his life goes and sings the entire song completely out of key to my mom in front of 50 people. It was about as hilarious as it was romantic. Um, but that's the thing is like when I think about that, it's, um, you know, the movie itself and all those Christmas movies, they try and draw something out of us that's basically, we have these ideals around Christmas that there's like, a togetherness that we're looking for, an in-loveness that we're looking for. There's like a life that we should live, and Christmas brings all of that to the surface. And then at the same time, the reality is that for, for a lot of people, Christmas is actually a little dark. Um, there's a lot of anxiety that surrounds Christmas because as much as we have the ideals of what things should be, we also deal with the reality of the way that things aren't. And so um, if you live long enough, you basically will get to... Um, Christmas Day and, you, and you, you know, you'll have experienced loss. And so that person who usually sits in that chair at the dinner table is not there and will never be there again. And um, you know, so-and-so had a fight with so-and-so three months ago and so they're not showing up this Christmas. And then two years goes by and three years goes by and pretty soon nobody's talking to each other. And so what was a family is all starting to fragment. And um, we deal with all of these kinds of things. And then there's just the pervasive loneliness of the holiday. Like I think for a lot of people there's um, there's just a lonely feeling like it's, you know, either they're, either they're at an age where they want to have a family of their own and they're not experiencing that, or family isn't what it used to be. And so all of these things, we feel all of these emotions and they come bubbling up to the surface on Christmas. And then there's the thing that exists above all of that and that's basically like, this is a holiday and does it actually mean anything? I mean, the entire thing revolves around a person of Jesus Christ, but does anybody actually care? I mean... The odds that he was born on December 25th are very, very low. And then, really, the early church never celebrated Christmas. It was a pagan holiday. 
um, that the Christian church kind of hijacked in the 300s, and they carried on that tradition for like maybe a couple hundred years. Then it died out completely. And it wasn't until Charles Dickens started writing again that Christmas kind of revived in England, and then retailers caught on, and that's when it really got an engine to it, you know? And so that's why, you know, you always see, I see these memes and tweets where people are like, America is the only place in the world where you celebrate what you're thankful for on Thursday and then go run over people Friday mornings you get stuff you don't have. <laughs> but like you look at that, you look at Black Friday and Cyber Monday and all this and you're like, man, like is there actually like, does, is, there, is, there, is Jesus in any of this or is this just a super commercialized holiday at this point? Is there anything that like actually, is there anything that I as a Christian should identify with or is, should I, like does this just come and go and who cares? And so what we wanted to do at Calvary is basically over the next four weeks, we're going to look at a couple specific things that make up Christmas, and we want to basically find Jesus in those things. Um, and the reason we want to do that is because as we all progress as a church through the holiday season, there's this idea that you don't want to miss the moment. And everybody understands that with Christmas. You don't want to miss the moment. And I think a lot of times we say that with our family, but how about with God? Um, I know for me, like, I don't want to miss the moment with God to be able to appreciate, um, to be able to see insight, to be able to, um, to just grow closer to the Lord throughout this season. And so we'll look, at, we'll look at four specific things over four weeks where we'll get into that. So um, we kind of like threw dice, and I got um, gifts, which are a big part of Christmas, probably like the biggest part of Christmas. I looked up some data, and it turns out that we spend on average about $1,000 per person through the month of December on gifts. And I looked at that and I was like, all right, I need to up my game because I don't think I've spent a thousand bucks enough for but, um, But yeah, like we, we, we spend a lot of money basically giving and then we spend a lot of time receiving over Christmas. And so what is it about gifts? And I guess like even more so than gifts, what is it specifically about generosity that seems to be the bedrock foundation of this holiday? And so that's why we're in Luke 19, because Luke 19, of all the scripture that I know, basically is the most radical case of generosity that I think you'll find in the entire Bible. Um, and so I'm going to read it. It starts Luke 19, verse 1, and then I'm going to go to verse 10. It says, he entered Jericho and was passing through. Now, the he is Jesus in this. He entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not, because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He is gone to be the guest of a man who's a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. So this is such an interesting story, and basically the reason I bring this story up specifically is like this is the Scrooge story set in like 20 AD in Palestine. Um, you, what we're going to watch is the transformation of a person who was chief tax collector of the city of Jericho, one of the richest, most powerful, and most corrupt men in the city, becomes one of the most justice-oriented and most generous men in the city in the span of literally a couple hours because he meets Jesus. Um, to give some context for basically where we are in the story of Jesus, 
Jesus has just been doing a lot of ministry in Galilee, and he's making his way towards Jerusalem. And this will be his last visit to Jerusalem because he's about to get crucified. So just a few, um, just a few verses later um, is the triumphal entry where they say, Hosanna, praise him the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they hail Jesus as the Messiah. Jesus right now is at the height of his popularity in the story of Zacchaeus. And so as he gets to Jericho, there's a crowd who's around him, and there's a crowd coming out to meet him from Jericho, maybe hundreds, maybe even a thousand people. Everybody is asking the question, who is this Jesus? They've heard all kinds of stories about him, and now he's coming to their town. And so Jesus makes his way to the gate of Jericho, and at the gate, he actually heals a blind person. And so now, it's like everything's been, everything transitions, because at, at first it was, here's the things that we've heard about Jesus. We heard that he fed 5,000, and we heard that he heals people, and we heard that he says a whole bunch of crazy stuff that's not within our theology, but now he's heal, here, and he healed a blind man right in front of our eyes. And so whatever the crowd was in before, now it's like worked its way up to a frenzy. And Jesus is passing through Jericho, and he comes to the other side. Now the thing is, there's a man who's also very curious to see Jesus, but the problem is that he's tiny. If you grew up in like um, youth group or something, you remember singing that song, Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. Yeah? No? Okay, cool. Well, you were spared, because that is the weirdest song in the entire world. <laughs> But the idea is that Zacchaeus is actually short, but he's, he's got a bunch of curiosity and he wants to find out who this person is just as much as everybody else does, but he can't see over the crowd. So him being the clever person that he is, he runs to where Jesus is going to be and he climbs up into a tree so that he has like the, um, the view of Jesus as he walks by. Now this is actually really interesting because... Uh, there was regulations back in those days, in, specifically in Jericho. Jericho was a town where they, they were famous for these sycamore fig trees. And the sycamore figs produced a really, really sticky fruit. And you could actually use the fruit and refine it, and it would make a certain type of glue. And there was regulations regarding these fig trees that they couldn't be very close to the road. And the reason is, is because sycamore fig trees also have really low hanging branches. And if little boys like anything, it's to climb trees and also cause mayhem. And so what would happen is these little boys would climb up these sycamore fig trees and they would throw the fruit at people who would be passing by. And you would get this sticky stuff in your hair and it was so sticky you actually couldn't get it out. The only way you could get it out was you could cut it. And so we, they were trying to avoid this at all costs and so what they would do is you had to build these sycamore fig, you had to uh, plant these sycamore fig trees 30 feet off the road. So this is really interesting because when it says that the crowd comes by and Jesus sees Zacchaeus in a tree, it's not that he sees him on the road. He actually sees him on a tree about 30 feet away. And so it must have been a very weird moment. Everybody, there's a whole crowd following Jesus, and then he kind of makes a left turn. And he goes off the road, and he starts marching towards this fig tree. And I can imagine what it must have felt like to be Zacchaeus in that moment. <laughs> I mean, you've gone into... Nobody can really... I, a sycamore fig tree has really dense foliage, so no one can see you when you're in it. So he's up there, and he's hiding, and he basically just wants to check out Jesus when he goes by. Maybe he's like, I would love to be there when a, I'd, I'd love to witness a miracle that happens, or maybe he's going to stop and teach, and I'll be able to just stay up here, and no one will see me. And then slowly, Jesus is literally walking straight towards the tree that he's hiding in. And you can imagine, like, his heart starts to pound, right? And the crowd comes over, and they're like, what's going to happen? This is so weird. Why is he walking this tree? And he gets to the bottom, and he yells up, Zacchaeus, which is a name that everybody in Jericho would have known because Zacchaeus was basically the IRS, but worse. And so, like, we all know Uncle Sam, and so, like, he was literally the Uncle Sam um, of Jericho. And 
Um, Jesus yells Zacchaeus, and people are like, I can't believe it. Zacchaeus is up in that tree. He climbed up there. That short guy climbed up there like a little boy. And they finally find him in like this super compromising situation, which you know you had to have loved, right? Because who doesn't want to see somebody who's powerful and corrupt just like get knocked down a few pegs? And they're like, I wonder what Jesus is going to do. Here we are, the most famous popular rabbi in the entire region and one of the most corrupt, powerful men hiding in a tree. And Jesus is always doing cool tricks. So what's he going to do to this guy? And then Jesus flips the script on them completely because he says, Zacchaeus, I must come stay at your house today. Harry and come down from the tree. And then it says they all grumbled and complained because they said he's gone to be the friend of sinners. So we don't know what happened at dinner, but I would imagine that Zacchaeus invited a bunch of his tax collector friends and they all got together. Maybe even some businessmen who were in cahoots with the tax collectors. And they have a big dinner with Jesus and um, who knows what they talked about, but whatever happens, there's this moment where Zacchaeus stands up and he says, behold, which is a good opening line if you need like a, you know, to say something at Thanksgiving dinner or Christmas or whatever, just tell your family, behold, we will be eating in 15 minutes. <laughs> he says, behold, um, Lord, half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. Which at that point, probably every eyebrow in the room went up because they were like, if you've defrauded anybody, you're the chief tax collector of Jericho. You've defrauded every single person that exists here. And if you repaid everybody fourfold, you would have to go bankrupt literally, literally overnight. And so there's a lot of questions being raised about what happened in this guy's heart. And Jesus says something even more profound. He says... Salvation has come to this house today. Which, by the way, as far as your like, theology is concerned, that might be one of the most deep theological statements that you can read in the whole Bible. For some reason, Zacchaeus stands up and says he's going to give away all of his wealth, and Jesus, who knows a thing or two about salvation, says he's saved. <laughs> there's no prayer, there's no baptism, there's no like, doctrinal theology course that he goes through or whatever. He just said, I'm going to give away basically all my wealth, and Jesus says, that person, salvation came today. And then he ends with this line, for the Son of Man came to seek and save those who are lost. I know three things that I think are really, really um, important in this passage, and they don't really jump out to you. You have to like sit with it for a while. But I've kind of like found these and been pondering them for the last couple months. And I think they're super profound and they relate a lot to the idea of Christmas and a gift. The first thing is this, who is looking for who in the story? It starts out and it says that Zacchaeus is looking to see who Jesus was. And so that's basically the lens that you would read this through, is you would say, all right, this is the story of Zacchaeus trying to find Jesus. But then once, Zac once Jesus makes that left turn off the road and starts heading to that tree, I think the plot changes a little bit. You realize that Jesus is definitely on a mission to find Zacchaeus. In fact, he gets to the bottom of the tree and he looks up and he says, Zacchaeus, I don't even know how he knew his name. But he definitely knew that he was in the tree, and he definitely knew who he wanted to find, and then he invites himself to his house. He didn't even wait for an invitation. I'm going to come to your house today and eat dinner with you. And I think this is super profound because it's like, you wonder at dinner, you know, get, put yourself in the shoes of Zacchaeus, and I wonder what his life was like, what his family life was like. like these are real people. I wonder what it was like to be at dinner, and the most popular rabbi in the whole region, wants to eat dinner with you. And then you have this dinner, and, and maybe you have amazing conversation, and all kinds of things happen. And 
Then you say what you say. Oh, I'm going to give away all my wealth. And then he says, salvation has come to this house today. And then he says, for the Son of Man came to seek and save those who are lost. It's almost like you think like Jesus leaned down the table and winked at him and said, Zacchaeus, you thought that I was just passing through, but I was looking for you the whole time. And I think that like, uh, you know, there's an Abraham Joshua Heschel quote that I love. And I like come back to it all the time. He says this. Most theories of religion start out with defining the religious situation as man's search for God, right? Obvious. But all of human history as described in the Bible may be summarized in one phrase, God is in search of man. I think that's like a reality that we're not always awake to. There's this idea that we're constantly in this pursuit of God. But if you look at your life, I wonder if you could actually chart it out and say, man, there are all kinds of places where God was in pursuit of me. There are all kinds of places where I was almost actually going completely off course, and that's where I met him. Um, I, I think a lot about Bree Rainey, who's a really close friend of mine. And um, she grew up in this church, and then she went out to L.A. to be an actress and did all kinds of stuff out there and moved to Denver. And for um, eight to ten years, would tell you, she was just very, very far from God. Um, and not, that just, not just that she was complacent, but she was actually like living the opposite of the way that, that um, she would you know, be proud of now. And... I just think about this, uh, when I think about her story, I think it's funny because through all of that time, nobody really knew what was going to happen, but um, something you know, pretty normal happened that happens everywhere. Her brother was getting married, and so she came home for the wedding, and then they asked her to read, and what she read was an excerpt from Tim Keller's book, The Meaning of Marriage. And um, when she was reading it, I remember literally looking at her, and her hands are shaking, and She's reading basically um, like a beautifully written piece about God's love for us and that when we receive God's love, it's only then that we can actually extend God's love to others. And you look at it and you say like, man, I wonder if Bree was looking for God or if God was looking for her, you know? And you look at your own story and it's like those are the things that you start to piece together. Are we actually looking for God or is God looking for us? And the story of Zacchaeus, it's like there's this part where you know, like, you can read the story as a guy who's in a sycamore tree looking for Jesus to pass by, and that's true. But what's probably more true is that from the dawn of time, Jesus wanted to have that encounter with Zacchaeus that day. Second thing that's pretty amazing that pops out is Jesus doesn't care about Zacchaeus' reputation. In fact, he's the only one who doesn't. There's an entire crowd, 100, maybe 1,000 people there, and everybody grumbles and complains that he's gone to be the friend of sinners. But... Jesus doesn't mind. Um, he's, actually, uh, he's actually happy, you know. Zacchaeus says he received him joyfully. And there's almost this, like, as you read, don't you pick up a tone that this is, like, an actual, like, really happy thing? There's nothing about this that seems like obligation on Jesus' part. It's not like it's like, ah, yeah, i got to knock this one out before I head to Jerusalem. It's almost like Jesus has been looking forward to this for a long time. And I think that's, like... Uh, I think that's like one of the things that we don't do super well but is so unbelievably close to the heart of God is to recognize people for fundamentally what's inside of them, for not, not for the reputation and the things that they've done. I remember when John Clifford and I went out to L.A. Um, John has a heart for um, Chester, and he started a ministry called Greenhouse. And if you're not aware of it, you should be because it's amazing. But um, we were kind of scouting out what was Greenhouse going to be. And so we flew out to L.A. and went to this place called the Dream Center, which is a phenomenal um, uh, rehabilitation center and a homeless shelter and all kinds of things combined. And um, one of the things that we were going to do when we were out there is we were going to go to Skid Row in L.A. and we were going to hand out brown bag lunches basically to people, um, kind of for dinner because it was like pretty late at night. 
And so I remember me and John were sitting around a picnic table with a bunch of other volunteers who were going to go for the night and hand out these brown bag lunches. And we're waiting for our group leader, and he pulls up, and um, this like real cool looking Latino dude with like a LA Dodgers hat on backwards. And I was like, cool, I'm ready to go to Skid Row with you. And, uh, and I remember like this moment that I literally will never forget for my entire life. He stood up on the park bench and he goes, we don't have a lot of time, so I just wanna, I just wanna like, level set for everybody. He goes, I want everybody to know that we're not, gonna be, we're not going to be meeting any homeless people tonight. And he said, we're not going to be meeting any strippers. We're not going to be meeting any prostitutes. We're not going to be meeting any crack addicts. The only people that we're going to meet are people who are made in the image of God. And it's a powerful moment that I just like literally can't get out of my head and can't forget. It's the idea that it's like there is something about who Jesus is that sees through all of the external things, all the things that we've done, all the reputations we have, the things that we even think we are. There's something about Jesus that can cut through that and can recognize whatever it is inside of us, that if it just came alive, it would be amazing. And so Jesus, I can't even imagine what it would have felt like for Zacchaeus to understand that Jesus was looking at him that way. You have to remember, like, the tax collectors, um, you know, they actually weren't even allowed to worship in the temple. Um, what they did professionally was considered unclean, and so they were barred from any temple worship services or synagogues. And so um, the idea that Jesus literally brought the temple and the synagogue to Zacchaeus must have been amazing. Even his, his own curiosity of finding out who Jesus was, it was like, well, what are you going to do even when you find out? Because you can't go to the temple. That's where everything revolves around. And Jesus is like, no, don't worry about it. I'll come, and salvation will come with me. The last thing um, that really jumps out to me is this idea of salvation um, and how personal it is. Salvation is a deeply, deeply personal thing. And what I mean is that it's specific and it's unique to you. Um, I know that there's like some transcendent kind of idea of like what actually constitutes salvation, but you have to be a little curious about this specific verse because it's basically like a guy gives away all of his wealth and that equals salvation somehow. Would it be the same for you? And I don't really think so. In fact, there's actually only one other person in the Bible who um, Jesus asked to give away all of his wealth, and that's the rich young ruler. And it's actually a really cool thing to contrast Zacchaeus and the rich young ruler, and look, what made one person one way and what made one person the other? And so what you see is Zacchaeus, not even asked, decides he wants to give away basically all of his money. The rich young ruler comes to Jesus, and he has kind of a different agenda. He comes to Jesus, and he says... Hey, listen, I grew up in the faith. I've been keeping all the rules my entire life. I do know that something's missing, and I'm probably a little fearful of death or something like that. So is there like another list, like a secret list that you have that I can also kind of keep those so I can be sure? And it's almost like the rich young ruler is like, I know it's complicated. I know there's like a bunch of hoops to jump through. I'm ready to jump through them. And Jesus actually looks at me and goes, oh, you know what? I have good news for you. Not complicated at all. No long list. No hoops to jump through. There's only one thing that you lack. You have to give away all of your money. <laughs> and it says, the Bible says, he went away sad because he had much wealth. And Augustine said, God wants to give us good things, but our hands are too full to receive them. And you can see, like, the story that Zacchaeus lived out and the story that, rich, that the rich young ruler lived out, two completely different trajectories in life. In one, it says he received him joyfully. In the other, he went away sad, right? 
there's something that I've been pondering for a long time, which is basically the uniqueness of us in our relationship with Jesus. I think that um, a lot of times we get into a room like this and we basically try and build this assumption that all of our faith will look generally the same, you know, that um, because we get together and we worship and because we like to listen to teaching and like it's kind of like, well, if we all just start talking about our faith very personally, what we'd all discover is like we're all exactly the same. But that doesn't make a lot of sense. And the reason I think it doesn't make sense is because all of us are different. And so we're all, we're all going to relate to Jesus differently as a person, right? I mean, could you imagine if uh, my sister called me and she said, hey, are you, um, are you going to go do this thing with dad? Um, I don't know. What do you guys like to do? <laughs> are you going to go? Okay, I hate the Phillies. Um, are you going to go to the Phillies game with dad? And I'll be like, heck no, I'm not going to go to the Phillies game with dad. And she'd be like, why not? Everybody goes to the Phillies game with dad. No, everybody doesn't. I don't. That's not what my relationship with my dad is. We'll go to the Sixers game. And, the, and that's the thing is, like, I honestly think we don't really take this serious enough that our relationships with Jesus are actually very different. And one of the fundamental reasons that they're different is because, like Zacchaeus, we also have a thing. Like the rich young ruler, we also have a thing. And that's the thing that needs to go for, for Jesus to truly give us what he wants to give us. And that's unique to us as well. So salvation doesn't come to your house because you give away half your wealth. In fact, there's a lot of people who will say those types of things. It's like, oh, if you give away everything, then that's what really constitutes something like salvation. No, it's not. For everybody, it's going to be something different. And whatever's popping into your head right now is probably yours, you know? There's all kinds of things. I mean, we have, like, holding on to bitterness and um, sometimes, like, the habits that we have in life that we just can't seem to let go of. Or um, you can go down a laundry list of things. We know what these things are. There are things that keep us from receiving what God wants for us, and we've all got our own. And so that's one of the things that I... Um, that's one of the things that I've been pondering a lot. And I, wa and I wonder what it, what it must have been like for Zacchaeus to be there at that dinner and to have that, to have that broken in his life. I mean, you're looking at a chief tax collector. He's built an empire, basically, off of taking advantage of people and building a ton of wealth. And then whatever happens in 30 minutes, all of a sudden he's free of whatever that is that has a hold on him. He's so free that he just basically gives the entire thing away. I mean, if you want to know if somebody's free, it's when they give everything away that they've basically built their whole life. That's somebody who's free. There's, um, how many people in the room have seen A Beautiful Mind? Yeah. All right. I mean, it's like an Oscar winner, so... Um, so, A Beautiful Mind, uh, Russell Crowe is like, a, this is based on a true story, he's a schizophrenic, and um, he sees people, and, but he, does, he doesn't know that he's schizophrenic, and so like, when he starts to see these people, he assumes that they're real people, and he starts interacting with them, and he starts to build a whole relationship with these people. Now, over time, some other people in his life, like his wife, start to pick up on it. He's a crazy, intelligent mathematician who's figuring out all kinds of unbelievable things. Um, but his wife is picking up on the idea that he's living a life with people who aren't really there. And this is a true story. This is like an actual guy who won a Nobel Prize. And they come, it all kind of comes to this culminating moment in a beautiful mind. I'm going to give it away, so if you want to plug your ears, like if it's a, yeah. <laughs> um, it all kind of culminates in this moment where he has this confrontation with his wife in their house, and she, and she keeps screaming, they're not real, they're not real. And then she takes their baby, and she runs out into the car in the rain, and she's about to pull away. And in that moment, all three of the people that he's made up in his mind are there in the living room. And, one, and the little girl that he's basically lived his imaginary life with for 15 years 
grabs his hand and he looks down at her and all of a sudden a thought clicks in his mind. And he runs out to the car <laughs> and, and his wife is pulling out and he stops the car in the rain and he has this moment and she says, she never gets old. And all of a sudden, what was, a, what was basically like his reality for 15 years was broken when a little truth came in that she was 12 years old when I met her and she's still 12 years old today. She's never gotten old. She can't be real. And I think that for a lot of us in our life, we're trapped in some type of lie. And the lie is that there's something, there's something that's better than what Jesus has to offer in our lives. And when you have dinner with Jesus, when you spend time with God, what God can do is he can break that in your life. You can literally walk out from an encounter with Jesus and you can say, it wasn't real. It doesn't have a hold on you the same as it does. I mean, you're looking at a life transform where a person literally goes from injustice and wealth to justice and generosity like that. Spending time with Jesus is what breaks those lies. I want to invite the worship team up, and then I'm going to close. Um, I had a chance on Thanksgiving. My, my nephew, Declan, is three years old, and he's super cute. And um, his birthday is right around Thanksgiving, and so uh, we celebrate at Thanksgiving Day. And so we got him a bunch of toys, and, um, you know, we're all watching him open up the toys, and he's just, like, ripping them to shreds as quick as he can, and he gets a basketball hoop, and somebody's trying to set it up, and he jumps to the next thing, and he's ripping it open. And it's, like, basically what Christmas morning looks like, you know? And I had this thought as I'm watching Declan. He has no idea all of the moving parts that go into what makes up his life. Like, he has absolutely no idea. Um, he doesn't know that his parents have to work hard and get health insurance and need to, you know, get a car so that he can go places. Like, he, that, that, those kind of things aren't on his mind. All that he's basically doing right then is living in the moment and receiving. And I think our understanding of God is just like so warped sometimes because we don't really look at God. He describes himself as a father and a father who wants to give good things. In fact, me and my dad always talk about this in, um, in all of the Gospels. It's really funny that um, Jesus never quotes Solomon. I mean, Solomon was supposed to be the smartest guy that ever lived. And he accumulated a massive amount of wealth and massive armies, and he expanded the empire of Israel as far as it could go. He did all of this stuff, and Jesus never quotes him. He quotes Abraham and Isaiah and David, and the list goes on and on. He quotes tons of people, but never Solomon. In fact, the only thing that he says about Solomon is like this weird backhanded compliment. In the Sermon on the Mount, when he's talking about not being anxious, he's talking about how God wants to give good gifts, he says, consider the lilies of the fields and how they don't toil or spin. And yet even Solomon in all of his glory didn't look like one of these. It's such an interesting thing because I think so much of our life is spent basically saying, I've got to figure things out for myself. I have, not, I have no confidence that God will provide. I have no confidence that God wants to provide me with a good gift. But the reality I think that we're welcomed into is looking at these three truths, the idea that God is looking for us. It's not us looking for him. The idea that regardless of what we've done, he, he wants to invite himself to spend time with us. He wants to have dinner with us. 
And the idea that when we do spend time with them, his whole goal is for us to break the chains of whatever the lie is that we've come to believe, whatever the idol is that we put in that place, that he wants to break that so that we can actually walk in the freedom of what he has for us. There's a, um, there's a phrase that we throw around all the time um, during Christmas. It's, um, do you have the Christmas spirit, right? And that's like a funny, like intangible. I guess like the Christmas spirit is this mix of maybe it's like a little bit of like, uh, I don't know, like good vibes and family and a little bit of like spiked eggnog. And there you go, you have like the Christmas spirit. Um, I would probably say that the Christmas spirit, if you had to encapsulate it, is, is that um, it's an idea that there's wonder in the world, right? You see Christmas spirit and you're almost like, the, like children have it and they don't even have to work very hard for it. It's this idea that there's just wonder looking at the world around them. And G.K. Chesterton said something absolutely amazing that I will take to the bank for the rest of my life. He said, I would maintain that thanks are the highest form of thought and that gratitude is happiness doubled by wonder. And I love that because never in my life had anybody drawn the dot, like connected the dots between those two things for me. But once you see it, it's so apparent. There's something about gratitude that actually creates wonder in your life. And it's like, it's not until we're thankful for the things that we don't actually deserve. It's not until we appreciate those things that God has given us that actually we start to wonder at the world around us, that our eyes get a little bigger and we start to experience things as maybe as they were meant to be experienced. I think if the world is missing one thing today, for sure, it's wonder. Like, we're probably the most cynical generation that's ever lived, right? Everybody basically is on their phones and watching TV all the time, and then like everybody's seen everything, and it's like, what do you got, an amusement park? I've been to amusement parks. Like, nobody cares about anything anymore. There's like nothing that it can impress us. But I wonder if that's because we're just missing gratitude in our lives. I wonder if we were truly thankful um, if all that wonder kind of comes back. I had, um, I had a couple moments just in the past like week or two that really stuck out to me. I, fl I flew back, um, I flew into JFK and I called, a, um, I called an Uber um, back to my apartment and I shared with somebody else. And so we're having a conversation and we're talking and um, we end up talking about some spiritual stuff. And no lie, my Uber driver pulls over the car so he can turn around. And he was an immigrant and he couldn't like speak English super well. And, um, and he said, you know, um, no one ever talks about these types of things that you're talking about, but these are very close to my heart. And we got to the three of us basically just have a conversation about some deep spiritual stuff. And I think in some of the circles that we move in, we forget that for a lot of people, that's not even a reality. That not only is like, not only are people not experiencing God in their life, but they're not even talking about anything with like a lot of depth. And I had another interaction with, you know, I, at the office I work at, there's a, there's a woman who has an office across from me. It's like a co-working space. And we were having a conversation. I've never actually asked her what, she's, what she does. And so she said, well, I, I do, um, I, I develop an app and it's like an Instagram for pets. And I said, oh, that's really cute. You know, it must be. <laughs> must be fun. And she goes, yeah, it's actually really life-giving to the people that do it. Because it's not an Instagram for the pets. It's actually an Instagram for people. They use the pets as like their avatar. And so they actually like express themselves through their pets. And I said, well, why do they do that instead of just Instagram or whatever? 
And they said, well, they're like, a lot of these people are like kind of like ashamed of their bodies or they, you know, don't really have like a lot of community and they like aren't really good at socializing. And so everybody loves dogs and cats. And so they feel like if they put the cat or the dog up as a representation of themselves, everyone will love that, you know? And I was like, wow. She's, I said, who's your target market? And she just said, lonely people. <laughs> and I was like, man, like going into the Christmas season and you're like, gosh, there's just like, in New York City, there's a bunch of people who are posting pictures of their pets just so that they can get people to connect with them, you know, because they feel like they don't even deserve that. And so when I look at this, I just think, gosh, like we have so much, so much to be thankful for. And trying to like land this plane and bring it back into like what we were talking about with gifts, it's like the idea is this. Everything that we've been given is a gift. And like that's like not a Christian cliche or something like that. That's literally like, they'll tell you that in life. But on top of that, like whatever we've been given in life, the reality is if you're in this room and you're a believer, you've been given a gift and salvation and life with God. And that is something that's completely invaluable. And do we recognize that? Like G.K. Chesterton said, do we actually walk in that? Do we see it? And do we have gratitude for what God has given us? And if we do, do we wonder at what happens next? And so as we walk into this Christmas season, and you know, I know that everybody's busy, and we've all got to make moves, and we've got to buy 100 presents, and life's going to go really fast. I just want to challenge everybody in the room to make sure that you stop to recognize. I hope like even when you're in like, I don't know, Target, buying a bunch of toys for your kids. It's like that you remember that there's like a, there's a sense of gratitude that should be pervasive through the Christian experience. That there's something in us that should wake us up and make us feel like Zacchaeus, where it's like, I used to only care about money, and now like literally I'll give it all away. Um, do we, can we cultivate that sense of gratitude? Because I think the payoff at the end of it is that we will, um, we will be people who wonder again. And I just think, like, as a church community, how cool would it be for people who are outside of here to recognize, man, one thing about Christians that I really love, at least the ones at CC Delco, is they have this sense of wonder at the world. They have this sense of being able to, like, appreciate things that no one else can appreciate. They look at the small things. They find the intimate moments. They have, like, times where they're just sitting around a table and they wonder at the glory of God and what he's blessed them with. Like, can we introduce that and can we be known for that? Wouldn't that be an amazing thing if, like, the people in this room were known for their wonder? So we're going to close with a song and I'm going to pray us out. But that's my prayer. Um, for all of us, for me too, not to miss the holiday season, not to like, um, you know, we, we always use that term, miss the holiday season, and usually we describe it in our family, but not to miss Jesus in the season, and to be able to cultivate a sense of gratitude and be able to see wonder come back into our life again.